this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Ed Felton, co-founder of Offchain Labs. Ed is a professor of computer science at Princeton University. He is formally serving at the White House as Deputy United States Chief Technology Officer, where he worked with the Obama administration, informing them of new technology and the implications on society. We had a great conversation about that and what that meant. And Ed has been following and working with Bitcoin and with other blockchains since around 2011, 2012. So we talked a lot about how he's been looking at the space and how it's evolved. And so currently, Offchain Labs is a L2 solution for Ethereum hoping to try to make things faster. We talked about their transactions per second that they're getting to. We're talking about how taking some of the actual work on smart contracts and taking that off chain. And so making things faster on the initial chain and then kind of of creating a side chain, a private chain, or, you know, kind of way from the overall work that has to be done on the main chain. We talked about the intricacies there. We talked about how he can work with privacy. Uh, there is a privacy kind of component to the work that Offchain uh, Labs is doing with Arbitrum. Um, and then we talked about some of the interoperability. We talked about solidity. This is a great conversation, especially coming from Ed, who, as I mentioned, came from academia, has been within the government, and now is building a company that has just actually raised a very significant round from some great investors. So you're going to learn a lot. Remember, nothing on Base Layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation with Ed Felton, co founder of Offchain Labs. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Ed Felton, co-founder and chief science officer at Offchain Labs. Ed, how are you? I'm doing great. This is going to be super, super exciting. Ed is someone I've actually known from the past. He doesn't know that, but um, someone that has been within the political sphere um, helping our government with understanding technology. Um, about four or five years ago, Ed joined the White House uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy as Deputy U.S. Chief Technology Officer. Um, and so we're going to talk a lot about his past, and we're going to talk about what Offchain Labs is doing. Uh, they are working on a layer two solution for Ethereum, making things faster and better, which is super important. So, Ed, if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you came into what I comically call the wacky world of crypto land from such a prestigious kind of background working, especially with the the White House and the president. Sure. Um, I've spent most of my career as an academic. I've been a professor at Princeton for 26 years now, uh, first in computer science and then later in computer science and in the public policy school. And so I've been interested for a long time in the intersection between uh, between information technology and everything related to public life. Um, and so as part of that journey, um, I've three times uh, gone into the U.S. government and worked there. And you mentioned probably the most prominent of those, which is uh, my time in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, basically serving as a technology advisor to President Obama and his team. 
That is pretty amazing. So what would the, what give us a day to day if you could kind of going back, you know, a few years ago, what would that look like? You know, what kind of things were you looking at at that time? Was it more defensive posturing, understanding kind of technology that might harm the US? Or was it this is what's happening with blockchain? This is what's happening with AI? This is what's happening with VR? What was that on a day to day basis? What did that look like? It was really a mix of things, and it, it did include a bunch of work that was more defensive in nature, dealing with things like cybersecurity, uh, things like the security of the election, and um, other ways in which um, technology could cause problems, or ways in which the parts of the government that are concerned with national security could take best advantage of technology safely. Um, but then there are also pieces that were about uh, trying to understand and convey and set strategy related to new technologies, um, AI and, and uh, blockchain being two of those. Uh, AI is one where I spent a lot of time. Um, I was the sort of the quarterback for the uh, administration's policy work on AI, which led to um, led to the creation of a couple of big reports that are kind of like national strategies in the space. Hmm. Um, it, but it's really a mix of things. One of the things I learned in that job is that there are a million things going on. The government is big and um, <laughs> has all kinds of different challenges from how can the uh, how can the National Park Service uh, make use of drones to manage and understand what's happening in the national parks to um, national security to how to make sure that the systems that control dams and the power system are secure to, um, you know, how to react to the latest corporate data breach. Uh, every day is really different in a job like that. And a lot of it is driven by events and, and, and schedules. I'm sure it kept you on your toes. So I'm curious. So this is around 2015, if I'm not mistaken. So this is right around the time where Bitcoin was starting to get a little bit more notoriety, not for necessarily the best reasons. This was around the time of the Silk Road um, and right around the time of the Dow hack, right around that time, give or take. And so I'm curious, you know, you're in this position of, I have to say power because, you know, obviously you're at the, you know, in a place where most people don't get to be, uh, obviously working with the president of the United States and his, his team on a regular basis. And so, at what point in time, you know, did you become aware of what, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain was up to? You know, what point in time did you say, okay, you know, going forward, I see a life where I'm going to devote myself to being a builder, a founder in this world. So how did that, where did that drive come from? What really drove you to say, okay, this is where I want to pivot my career uh, and build? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so my interest in the area initially was entirely academic. I started doing research related to Bitcoin in late 2012, so pretty early. Um, and that was really about trying to understand how the system works and why it works. Um, one of my colleagues had a great way of explaining this in those days. Uh, he said that Bitcoin works in practice, but not in theory, um, <laughs> right? Meaning that you could explain <clears throat> from the standpoint of economics and computer science, why one should be skeptical of a system like this. Um, and it didn't really have a sound theoretical um, footing in either of those disciplines. And yet it seemed to be working with what seemed at the time like an enormous amount of money at stake, literally millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, right. So I, st I started doing research in the area uh, in around 2012, and that led to 
uh, creating a course and uh, co-writing a textbook on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency technologies. So all of that happened before I went into the, the White House staff. Wow. So then when I got there, um, you know, one of the things I was trying to do was to um, try to be a catalyst for helping the government understand and uh, this stuff and do the best job it could um, in dealing with it. Um, and I was pretty happy to see that the agencies that needed to know about this technology seemed to have a reasonable understanding, high level understanding of it and seemed to be treating it as a technology that had a lot of promise and not something that the government would be interested in trying to block, mm -hmm. uh, but more something where there were bad actors and there were harms that were happening. And the question was, how can the government agencies in that area um, make sure that they're cutting off the bad actors and that they're able to catch criminals who are operating there and, and so on. Uh, and there was also a pretty interesting discussion about the speculative at that time about how government might itself use the technology. Hmm. That is interesting, obviously, in this narrative that we're dealing with over the last six months, give or take, after Facebook and Libra and after all the congressional hearings, to hear a few years ago, obviously, in 15 and 16, when you were there, that um, people were really trying to come up to speed. So it's been a few years. So it's not – it's fair to say, in my opinion, that it's not something that just smacked them in the face, that they've been aware, you know, as a agency, if you will, as a government agency, that, you know, they're, they're, this has existed. So it, really interesting background on that. And I'm, I'm happy that you were able to obviously – educate and get people informed about that further at that point in time, because obviously that has helped, you know, further the, the kind of the work that's happening now within the government and taking a look at blockchains and how they can help uh, society and economies. So let's get into off-chain labs. Um, so give us a little bit of a briefer on what off-chain labs is and then Arbitrum. Um, for me, what I've been able to see and read about it and learn about it, it is a layer two cryptocurrency platform that makes smart contracts scalable, fast, and private. So, you know, let's go into what Off-Chain Labs is. Let's talk a little bit about Arbitrum. And then there's about three or four different pieces of that that I want to go into that I think are really interesting for people to hear about. Sure. Yeah. L let me tell you a little bit about the company. Um, so uh, this Off-Chain Labs uh was something that I co-founded with two then PhD students um, from, from Princeton University, and it arose out of our university research. Um, as part of that whole uh, research agenda I was talking about before, um, we started working on the problem of how to make smart contracts scale better. Smart contracts are a really powerful technology, but current systems are very limited in terms of how many contracts you can have and how complex they can be. And I'll, I imagine we're going to talk about that more. Sure. Um, but anyway, we, we are trying to address that problem. And we came up with this technology that we called Arbitrum. Um, and as it worked its way through the academic pipeline, and as we wrote and then eventually published an academic paper on it, we came to realize that it solved a problem that had real commercial significance. And so we decided we're going to start a company to commercialize the technology. So that was kind of the history. We started um, about a year ago. Uh, we actually signed the papers. And at that point, we were just three guys and a piece of paper. Um, early in 2019, we closed a, a venture funding round. We raised $3.7 million of venture funding. Um, and we have then sort of gotten down to the work of engineering a system that solves real people's problems. So currently where we are is we've just announced the second 
alpha version of our product. So it's out there for software developers to try out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're, we're working as hard as we can to get a product that's out the door and something that we, you know, are willing to um, advise people to put real money into and, uh, and pay us real money for Right. So if any of the listeners have listened past, we know that Ethereum and Bitcoin and other blockchains have a scaling issue. Now, with what we know is uh, it is mostly linear, so block by block, and then you have a propagation time. And there are security features, which both sides of the camp say are important. So it can't be as fast because you want to make sure that no malicious people or entities or code is going into there. And so the slowness is, in some people's minds, a security feature, actually. And so then there are other types of formats. There are the graphs, which DAGs, which say, well, you don't have to go linear, you can go X, Y, and Z, you can go up and down, you can go whichever way and get to getting the propagation done. Um, So everyone's trying to get to speed, Uh, everyone's trying to work on scalability. So from your white paper, and I encourage people to take a look at that because it's a very well written paper, Arbitrum has four main advantages, scalability, privacy, the antitrust guarantee of correct execution, and interoperation with Ethereum. So let's discuss each one of these in detail. So scalability. So I've seen it reported. I think you all just had some reporting on Brave New Coin that Arbitrum is designed to allow smart contracts to process more than 500 transactions per second. So let's go into that. How are you doing that? And let's go into some of the problems that are inherent with Ethereum L1. And let's see how you guys are adjusting that and fixing that to make it faster and more performant. Sure. So let's start with Ethereum, with L1 Ethereum, the basic Ethereum. So you can have smart contracts, which are basically computer programs that um, that the uh, L1 system, in that case, is supposed to ensure will execute correctly according to what their code says they should do, right? And the way that Ethereum L1 does that is every miner in the Ethereum system actually walks through every single step of execution that every smart contract does. So that's a very laborious step-by-step process. And the advantage, as you said, is that it's simple and you know it's correct because every miner checks every single thing. But the problem is that it's relatively slow so that the total capacity of smart contracts in Ethereum is about a tenth of a laptop of sort of computing power. Um, and that has to be shared by everyone ac- across the whole world. Uh, and so what that means is that although the system's high, very secure, it doesn't scale very well. You can't run any big computation, even anything big enough to make one laptop work hard, let alone thousands of computations from all around the world. So what we do to get scalability is essentially to move almost all of that work of verification away from the main miners. And the miners just play a kind of role of recording what contracts are doing and then resolving disputes about what a contract would do. We have a system that gives all of the participants in a contract a strong incentive to agree on what it's going to do. And if all the participants agree, then that's fine. And the system could just accept that. Um, if there is a dispute, something that's strongly disincentivized, then we have an efficient way that the miners can resolve that dispute. So essentially, we move almost all of the work of verifying smart contract correctness off of the main chain, away from the main Ethereum miners. And we move that onto the people who actually are participating in the contracts. But we do that in a way that maintains the security. And I think you call that the ETH bridge? Yeah, the ETH bridge is a single 
uh, smart contract that runs on on the Ethereum base layer, which is a kind of recorder and referee of what happens in the Arbitrum system. But yeah. it just does that sort of, um, it's a sort of notary and referee. Right. Now you, you brought up the word incentivize miners. So what is the incentive model? What's the consensus model that you guys are using? Obviously, we know Ethereum L1 is moving from proof of work to proof of stake. Are you still using proof of work? And are you also migrating to proof of stake as well? We just build on top of what of the consensus mechanism that um, that Ethereum uses. So the, the basic model of, of uh, if you will, consensus that we use among the participants in a single contract is usually just unanimous agreement. Um, and of course, unanimous agreement is a very easy method to enforce. Somebody just says, hey, do we all agree on X? And if everybody else digitally signs that, then you're good to go. Um, in the case where there's a disagreement, then you're going to have to resolve the dispute. And this ETHBridge component does that. So we rely fundamentally on the underlying Ethereum base layer uh, whatever it uses, currently proof of work, but maybe someday proof of stake. Um, and then we build on top of that. It sounds a little bit like on-chain governance. Is that what you would describe it as as well? Um, in a sense, except it's not governance in the sense of voting. Mm-hmm. It's governance in, in the sense that um, uh, if there's any disagreement, then someone comes in and figures out who's actually right about the facts. Um, And that's actually one difference between our scaling approach and many others. Many others fundamentally rely on a on a voting type of method where if you have like, say, a two thirds majority of participants say something should happen, Mm -hmm. then that thing, you know, is deemed to be correct. And the problem is, you know, that democracy doesn't always protect the rights of the minority. And so if two thirds of the people decide they want to beat up on you in a system like that, you can't really protect yourself. But we have this any trust guarantee, which means basically that if any one participant is honest, then you're guaranteed to get correct behavior. And that means if you just stand up for yourself, that your rights will be vindicated in the system. So let's talk about that. And then we'll we'll pivot to privacy because I'm also interested in privacy as it relates sure. to Ethereum. So unlike many other state channels, sidechain or private chain solutions, Arbitrum guarantees correct execution as long as any one validator of a DAP acts honestly. So break that down a little bit more. Honesty sure. as it relates to humans, as their character. Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> that could be a problem sometimes, as we've seen. So talk a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, what we mean by honesty here is that the, the rules of Arbitrum say that when the next instruction in the code of your smart contract is to add A and B, that what it will do is add A and B. Um, so what we mean by honesty here is just that the parties are telling the truth about what the next step of computation or the next thousand steps of computation will do. So there is a correct answer to that. It's not so it's not in a sense, it's not a matter of opinion. But what we want is a system where the system itself at the base layer doesn't need to check up on everything every time. Yeah. Right. And so. Um, This is what, but we also want it to be the case that if you're the one person who wants correct behavior and everyone else is ganging up on you and saying, no, 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 uh, you know, two, two plus two is five, that there's a referee who actually can just go and add two plus two themselves and say, you're right. So, you know, this, this is one of the fundamental distinctions for us is that we get to, um, 
we sort of get to agreement off chain in a way that's not just about voting, but it's um, but it is but it's a way that in which the the system can guarantee correctness no matter uh, as long as there's one person who stands up for the truth. Right. Uh, and that's what we mean by honest. Yeah. Got it. And as an academic, I'm sure you're familiar with the trilemma. And so one of the you know kind of components of the trilemma is decentralization. So it sounds like, and I want you to refute me on this because I think you will, that you know, this this entity, this kind of referee, as you said, is a little bit of a centralization kind of legacy piece. That there's someone in the middle that says, Okay, you know, two plus two is four. Everyone else is wrong. You guys have to do it right. So talk to us a little bit about this issue, because this is a constant issue with with blockchains is the trilemma. You know, how do you actually get to pure, if you can, pure decentralization? Yeah, so the I, the there's kind of two senses in which people talk about decentralization. Um, one is about who is in control. That is, is there some person, some company that can just change stuff um, on their own, right? And in our system, that's not the case. This ETHBridge, it's a smart contract which runs on Ethereum. And that means that if you trust Ethereum and its decentralized mechanisms, then you know exactly what that ETHBridge will do. And we, Off-Chain Labs, we wrote the ETHBridge we will show you the code. If you don't believe that our code is good, then don't use our system. Um, but you have the ability to verify it. And once you are confident or, uh, you know, you, or people you trust have verified and said, yes, it is actually verifying the addition of integers correctly, um, then we don't have the ability to change that later. So the Etheridge runs on top of the decentralized Ethernet layer one. So it is logically centralized in the sense that there are rules that there's one set of rules about what the system is supposed to do but the enforcement of those rules is fully decentralized and that's what people mostly care about right they they want to know that we off-chain labs can't just arbitrarily change the rules of the system take all of your money and you know and and flee to the caribbean uh, <laughs> right that um We'll tell you what the system does. You can inspect it yourself, and we cannot change it after the fact. Right. So let's get into privacy, one of your other main components. And this is interesting because we've had a few other uh, projects like Keep on the show that have been working on creating layers on top of Ethereum. And we've talked about some of the issues inherently in L1 and Ethereum in terms of privacy. We've had people like uh, Ricardo Spagni from Monero and others that have talked about some of the inherent issues with other blockchains as it relates to privacy. So on your paper, it says, only the participants who validate a dApps execution need to know what is in the dApps code or storage. So let's talk a little bit more about privacy. How are you handling privacy? Um, obviously, I, I'd like to know, you know kind of the importance of privacy uh, to you because I think that is also something that a lot of people are starting to care about. We saw yesterday that 40 AGs in the United States have uh, started at a probe against Google, and one of the issues is regarding privacy. We've seen GDPR overseas. We're starting to see privacy become more of an issue mainstream. So talk to us about privacy as it relates to what you're building. Sure. Um, so what we want to provide in terms of privacy is to make sure that if uh, a group of, if a few parties get together and make, if they make a traditional contract signed on paper, uh, you don't have to publish that for the whole world to see. You don't have to um, 
And, and, and it's not the case with the traditional contract that every time you do something that the contract requires you to do, that the whole world will see that, right? If, if I, you have an employment contract with your employer, um, exactly how many dollars they send you each month is not something that has to happen publicly. It doesn't have to be wired into some contract which is published, right? And so it's just a natural thing that people want their contracts to be able to remain private. Mm-hmm. The, so you want them to stay private, but you also want to be able to enforce, right. enforce them, right? Um, and so that's what we mean by privacy. So the participants in a contract, of course, need to know what it says and what it's going to do and what it is doing. Um, but nobody else needs to know. You can tell them if you want, but, um, but the system doesn't force you to disclose the details of your contract in order to, for it to operate. Um, now, one of the things, this is one, the, the uh, opportunity to get that kind of privacy is one of the things that emerges from the fact that we have this very efficient recording and dispute resolution mechanism. Mm-hmm. That you record the state of your contract gets recorded on the main chain simply as a cryptographic hash, which is a very small sort of digest of the contract state, which doesn't reveal any information about its internals. Um, and when there's a dispute, the dispute resolution process also writes so little information onto the main chain that you can resolve a dispute and figure out who's right without having dis- to disclose basically anything about what your contract is doing. Um, so the people who are involved in the contract, it's their business to know what it is and it's their, and they need the right to make it behave correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but other people don't need to worry about it. Um, and we will guarantee you that if Alice and Bob over on the other side of the world are involved in some contract, that contract can't hurt you. It can't take your money or do anything else that would harm you, um, without you knowing about it. And so that contract between Alice and Bob, and as everyone hopefully who listens in crypto, Alice and Bob are the always the two characters in the story that we all tell. Um, so when Alice and Bob actually execute a smart contract, it sounds like all of that is basically you know kind of cryptographically hashed. Is that put in almost? Is there any work that you're using, or you were looking at zero knowledge proofs, or the use of hash time locks, things that are off chain that enable some of this? Is that one of the features? Um, we don't do those things. Um, the cryptography that we use in Arbitrum is pretty simple. It's just cryptographic hashes and basic digital signatures. Um, we've done a bunch of looking at whether zero knowledge proofs make sense mm-hmm. for our kind of application. Um, and I think in our current use cases, they probably don't. The cost of zero knowledge proofs is probably too high. And in our current use cases, it doesn't add much value to what we already have. Um, but I think as our product evolves, um, that's a feature that we might pick up. Interesting. So the last feature is interoperability with Ethereum. So Arbitrum is interoperable with Ethereum. You write your DAP in Solidity, then use the open source Arbitrum compiler to generate Arbitrum-ready code. So I'm going to pick on Solidity here. We've talked a lot about Solidity over the last few year, uh, last uh, last few months. Um, we haven't been on the show in the last few years. But we'll get to that at some point in the future. But in the last few months, we've talked a lot about Solidity. Uh, we just had Dean Triple from Agoragon, uh, who's been basically doing smart contracts for the last 20 to 30 years. Um, and with Agoric, they're using JavaScript. Um, and Dean made a case that JavaScript has got more 
developers. It's got hundreds of thousands of developers around the world that know that code. It is universally accepted and known. And so I'm curious, you know, what your opinion on Solidity is. Has it actually been something that has slowed down the overall adoption of Ethereum within the developer community? And I know that it sounds also that you are supporting or you're planning to support multiple languages in the future. So talk to us a little bit about the interop with Ethereum and talk to us a little bit about Solidity and talk to us about the language support. Sure. One of the things we really wanted to do is make it as easy as possible for people who are developing smart contracts on uh, for Ethereum to move them over onto Arbitrum. Um, and so we provide a set of software tools that let people do that. They can take their existing Solidity code, because nowadays most developers do use Solidity, and just run it through our um, Arbitrum compiler, and it does all the work of sort of translating it to run on our Arbitrum system. Um, now, the reason we're using Solidity is not because we are the presidents of the Solidity fan club, uh, which we're not especially, um, <laughs> but because that's where the developers are now. Um, similarly, that's why we're on Ethereum. Our basic technology works for different languages. It works for different layer one blockchains, and we're going where the developers are. That's where our first product is. And once we have that product fully shipped, then we're going to look at what other uh, sorts of either languages for, for, for developers or layer ones uh, on which to run things make sense. I think long term, there will probably be a migration away from Solidity and more integration of blockchain programming ideas into more traditional languages. Um, and we'll ride that wave as it happens. But uh, right now, you know, we're going where the developers are. So we've talked a lot about kind of the intricacies. We talked about some of the four components that really make things work in Arbitrum. So, you know, for the listener uh, who might be an institutional investor, what are the use cases for this? You know, give it to them in, in kind of plain vanilla. You know, at the end of the day, how is this going to impact the overall space? How is this going to make corporations and other businesses use this? What are the use cases that you see in the future? Sure. Uh, and let me talk about that in general terms, and then I'll talk about some specific use cases. In general terms, um, Arbitrum and some of the other systems like it um, will vastly increase the, the, the scope and complexity of what kinds of computations you can do on blockchains. Right now, if you're using Ethereum, you have to do things that are pretty simple because there's not much computing power available and storage on Ethereum is very expensive. So as Arbitrum and similar systems come along, you can take really sort of industrial strength applications with uh, a lot of code and a complex state and where you need a lot of higher performance than, uh, than uh, the original Ethereum can provide. And all of those things become open. So there's just a lot more applications that you can run. Uh, also, we think the ability to have combined privacy with uh, high security is one of our unique uh, value propositions. So that particular combination, for example, is really good if what you want is to build a private consortium blockchain. So imagine a bunch of companies who maybe are in some sector and they want to set up a private trading or uh, say a supply chain tracking blockchain that whose rules they will write. So if you build that on top of Arbitrum, what you get is a system that has all of the security of the underlying Ethereum chain, um, but, with, but where the members of your consortium know what everything that's going on, but the whole world doesn't have to know. Uh, and then also the interoperation with Ethereum, the ability to move Ether or other tokens 
defined on Ethereum back and forth between Ethereum land and Arbitrum land also we think provides value if you want customers to be able to interact with this thing. So private consortium blockchains are one of the big use cases where that, that we're looking at. Um, we also think there's a lot of interesting applications in gaming and related areas. Um, you know, so if you think of casual games, the sort of very simple games um, like, I don't know, Angry Birds or something, um, to go back a little while, um, or Candy Crush or something like that, um, those sort of casual games, those you can do on existing systems. But if you want to do games that have more complex rules, like even rules as relatively simple as the rules of chess, right? Chess is a complex, difficult game, but the rules are not that complicated. Mm -hmm. um, even that st stresses what you can do on, um, on Ethereum. So if you want a game with complex rules, if you want a game with a lot of players, if you want a game with non-player characters um, or a co complex rule set, um, you can't really do that on existing platforms. Um, and this extends to things also like fantasy sports, mm -hmm. uh, a situation where you have a lot of storage to keep track of what all of your teams and, 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 and users are doing, where you have to process a not massive, but pretty big set of data about what, you know, what all the, the, the players are doing and their performance in games. You want to be able to update it all in real time for a large number of people. Those are the types of applications that just aren't possible on today's uh, blockchain systems, which uh, which Arbitrum opens up. So, you know, we think that there will be an explosion of applications uh, across areas like these once the doors are open to a lot more things uh, happening on blockchain that just aren't possible today. Super interesting. And I, uh, if you guys can help me with my fantasy football team, I lost by two points this past weekend. So if Arbitrum can help me with that, hopefully that, that'll be in the, uh, the, the framework in the next few months. <laughs> well, I don't know. So my, my fantasy football performance has gone down to Arbitrum, but... <laughs> Well, we all play for fun. Um, although, yeah, absolutely, we're in a league that's a little bit more competitive with some other Bitcoiners. So you know how Bitcoiners can be. Um, and so, as we're wrapping up, this has been a great conversation, Ed. And you know, this is you know, again, with your background and what you've done, you know, going from academia to uh, you know, service within the government, and now with Offchain Labs, I think it's another piece of the narrative that people of your stature are coming into this space. They see the realization of the future of what these things can do, what blockchains can do. And hopefully for the listeners, you know, someone of Ed's, you know, stature and reputation does not need to necessarily go and build something like this, but he sees the future with his colleagues and he sees what they can obviously do uh, with Ethereum and with some of the components of the blockchains that they're working with. So, you know, with that, we'd love to get a sense just a little bit more about you. Um, obviously, we know that you're, like myself, a faltering fantasy football league player now, but, you know, we'd like to kind of focus on two things, what you're reading, um, I think what we put into our brain in terms of, you know, kind of material uh, is really interesting. So what you're reading, if you've read anything recently book-wise that, you know, obviously could be crypto or non-crypto related. Um, and then music. Uh, if you get a chance to listen to some music, if you're working or coding or traveling, would love to get a sense of what music inspires you or what uh, helps you kind of unwind. Sure. All right. Books. Um, so I'm in a mode right now where I read things mostly for professional reasons. Um, and so I'm mostly reading either research literature or some of the better online writing about, about blockchain systems. Um, I follow technology policy, and so I read a bunch of government documents and so on. Um, but I don't have a lot of time for uh, 
recreational reading in any sense. Um, the last, um, I guess the last novel I read was on vacation was The Witch Owl um, by a ton of French, which, uh, which I quite enjoyed. Um, but uh, yeah, it's mostly, it's mostly, um, uh, mostly because I need to learn something um, quickly for work that I read stuff uh, these days, as it turns out. As far as music goes, I am a big fan of live music of almost any type. Hmm. Um, that um, for me, there's something about the performance and the interaction of the performer with the audience. You know, I would happily see um, a, an excellent, um, say, college music group um, almost over listening to the uh, listening to uh, to a recording. So I try to hear live music when I can. Um, and when it comes to listening to music, I'm really a sort of um, I, sp I guess I listen a lot to, to sort of classic jazz and, 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 and blues, mm -hmm. um, as much as anything, um, that, um, I listen to music that takes me away from the current time and that, that strikes me as, as classic and, and still sort of, um, uh, and still sort of interesting and complex. Interesting. I think that's a great answer. We've had a wide array of people who have come on with different kind of music perspectives and whether it's kind of, uh, kind of geographically located or it's something that they were, you know, had in their past. It's, I always find that music is an interesting tell of better person's kind of inner workings and what gets them going. And I really love the live music component. And so as we're getting into the top, you know, we also like to provide our guests an opportunity to inform people, listeners, where they can find out more about your company and the projects that your guys are working on. So where can people learn about Off-Chain Lab and Arbitrum and everything else in between? Sure. Uh, the single best source maybe is uh, just the offchainlabs.com website. Uh, from there, you can get to our white paper. Um, you can... Um, uh, People who are uh, programmers want to look at our software or try it out. You can go to uh, github.com slash offchain labs slash Arbitrum. Uh, it's all there. It's all open source. And uh, um, there's instructions on, on how to use it. Um, those are the best sources. You know, we have a pretty active Twitter feed. Uh, I write on Medium uh, in the Offchain Labs channel. So medium.com slash offchain labs, you can see uh, stuff I write. A lot of that is intended for people in the industry in the sort of technical side of the blockchain sector, but um, a lot of information there as well. Awesome. This was a great conversation with Ed Felton, co-founder of Offchain Labs. And again, with your background and the work you've done within government, I think this is an incredibly important conversation. Hopefully people really take this to heart that there is some serious people putting in some serious time to develop these blockchains, especially on Ethereum. Ed, thank you for being on the show. Hopefully we can catch up with you in a few months and see how things are progressing. And we'll catch you soon. Take care. Thanks. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www. 
ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.